the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As you embark on the Christian life and gain deeper knowledge of the will of God as revealed in His Word, you have probably noticed that the Christian faith, when rightly lived out, goes against the grain of society, goes against the will of natural man, it goes against the entirety of the world. And we as believers adhere to a standard that reflects the very character of God, which the world increasingly strays from day after day, generation after generation. Even 2,000 years ago, we were warned in Romans 12 to not be conformed or squeezed into the ways of this world, but to be transformed by God with the renewing of our minds. To put it quite simply, we are different, so we are to be different. There is perhaps no greater area of life in which we are distinct from the world than in trials, in suffering, in difficulty. In fact, what we are called to do in the midst of trials as believers seems insane to the natural man. Rather than despair, rather than focus on self, Rather than looking for an end, rather than anger, rather than depression, we are to be joyful. Not neutral, not just shoving it down, but actually proactively joyful in the midst of trials, difficulty, suffering, pain, hurt. But how in the world do we do that? But more importantly, why? Why would we do that? Why would we care to do that? Well, the answer comes from this most well-known of passages, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I invite you to join me there. We began a study in James last week, and this morning we find ourselves in verses 2 through 4 as we address the truth behind trials. Verses 2 through 4 of James chapter 1. Follow along as I read that to you. Consider it at all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Just reading that, we get a powerful glimpse of how this is possible to have joy in trials. But to break it down, these three verses, we have three points in our sermon, which are three truths to understand to have joy in difficulty. I'm going to give you this morning from the book of James three truths that you must understand in order to have joy in the midst of difficulty and trials, and you need to understand all three of these. Three truths to understand to have joy in difficulty. The first is the foundational premise. The foundational premise, that is, what is the command? What is the basics here? What is a trial? He says again in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren. In other words, consider it all joy, Christians, when you encounter various trials. And in order to understand why we are to have joy in trials, we need to answer a few questions. Yes, what is a trial, but also what is joy? And when should you have joy in trial? Let me begin by where the verse begins. Consider it all joy. James begins by telling us that. It is a command. He is telling believers, consider it all joy. In other words, this is not going to naturally happen just because you're a Christian. This means that the responsibility falls on you in the midst of a trial to see trials as a joy or not. It's your choice. We look at our lives, we look at our experience, we look at how we live, and we know we know that we can consider it all bitterness. We can consider it all anger. We can consider it all inconvenient, uncomfortable, unfair when we encounter various trials. But whether we respond with joy or not is, again, up to us. In other words, 
Joy in a trial is not automatic. It goes against your human nature. It is not natural. It is not normal. It is not easy. It takes work. It takes commitment. It takes mental fortitude. But before any of that can take place, it must be a choice. That I as a believer will find joy in trials. And that's what consider, the word consider implies. When used in the New Testament, that word consider always refers to some sort of mental judgment. A value judgment. A value judgment as to whether this difficulty is going to bring joy or not. And what's more, when we look at the Greek, this is a command. Yes, God is commanding you to consider trials a joy. The wisdom in commanding this actually reminds us of God's understanding of our weakness, our frailty, our sin. Because in our sin, we definitely do not naturally respond to difficulty with joy. I mean, think about it. You would not have to tell your children to clean up their room if it's never messy. You would not have to command them to clean up their room if they always put away their toys the second they're done playing with it. In the same way, God is commanding us to consider trials a joy because our faithful great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses understands that it is not our normal tendency to see trials as joy. So we are commanded to make the effort to do so. Be joyful in trials. But what is joy? Joy is a state of recognition of who God is and your relationship with Him. For the believer, joy is a state of recognition of who God is and your relationship with Him. And because neither of those things ever changes, God's character, your salvation, joy is something that does not need to ebb and flow like happiness does. Because happiness is based on a lot of subjective changing factors. Happiness is based on your mood, your emotional state, how much sleep you got last night, whether you're hungry or not. In other words, happiness is based on your circumstances. Happiness, as you have heard me say many times before, happiness is based on your ever-changing circumstances, whereas joy is based on your never-changing God. I'll say that again. Happiness is based on your ever-changing circumstances, whereas joy is based on your never-changing God, which is why you can always have joy, not just in trials, but even in good times, even in neutral times. Joy is not happiness. Joy is greater than happiness. Joy is sheer delight. Delight in God. And delight in what God has done for you. But again, joy is not something you always have automatically. You need to respond rightly to God. You need to respond rightly to His salvation. It is about perspective. Focusing on that which matters. And in this context, it's having the right perspective on trials, which includes understanding why God allows trials, which we'll look at in the next two verses. Another way to explain this right perspective, very practically, is that we are not to respond to trials by saying, God is mad at me, because that disregards the truths of your salvation. We do not respond to trials by saying, this trial is going to destroy me. Also, not true and not based on the character of God and His dying for your sin. To have the right perspective is to enter a trial and say, this trial is an opportunity for me to grow. This trial is an opportunity for joy and victory. Victory in the sense of spiritual growth and honoring God. Not necessarily victory in that you will be cured of your disease. Not necessarily victory that your friend will rise from the dead. But victory in your own walk with God. It is perspective. What are you focused on? This trash down here or the wonders up there? 
I was driving down Burlingame Avenue this morning. You've seen it. You've done it. People were sitting outside enjoying a nice breakfast in the outdoor seating that has kind of uh, exploded during COVID. Fresh air, good food, most of them sitting with what looked like a significant other or family. It's great. I was there when they renovated Burlingame Avenue. They, they, they said it, it's going to be more like Europe with wide sidewalks and outdoor seating in those French cafes. But as I s- sat there at a stoplight watching these people enjoy their breakfast, I noticed something else. Those tables are squeezed so tight that as they are trying to enjoy their omelets, people are squeezing by, rubbing their behinds on their tables, big dogs floating dander into their orange juice. But everyone was smiling and enjoying their breakfast, and I noticed it was because they were focused on who they were eating with. They were not distracted by the circumstances. This is Burlingame. A lot of fancy cars, a lot of nasty emissions driving within two feet of where their faces are as they try to eat breakfast. But they didn't mind. They didn't care because their perspective was right in front of them. Not around them. Not on what is going wrong. Not on what makes them uncomfortable. Their focus was right in front of them and that's where our focus needs to be. Right in front the narrow road that God is leading us down. Joy. Joy. What's more, James, if you look at the verse, doesn't say consider it joy. He says consider it all joy. This does not mean all in in one of the English senses as in everything. He's not saying consider everything joy. But all in the sense of complete, whole, unmixed, have pure joy in the midst of trials. What does this mean, have all joy? In other words, not a little bit of joy and a lot of bitterness. Not a lot of joy and a little bit of depression. Consider it complete, unadulterated joy. By the way, we're talking about death, disease, recessions, floods, Consider it complete, unadulterated joy. And I want to point out that since joy is different than happiness, happiness is the opposite of sadness, it is possible to have joy and sadness at the same time. It is biblical to have joy and mourning at the same time. For example... We are not happy when someone dies. But we can still have joy that we are suffering because of that person's death. You can have that joy, that confidence in the Lord while still mourning the loss of a friend. Because sadness or mourning, that's the opposite of happiness. It's not the opposite of joy. They're different categories. We're not insane. This is not a call to be illogical or irrational or unloving. For example, you need to mourn when people are in sin. You need to mourn when you have difficulties. You need to make financial adjustments when you lose your job and money is tight. You need to see a doctor when you have a heart attack. You don't just say, oh, this is great. I'm not going to do anything about it. You can still be responsible. You can still mourn. You can still be logical. You can still take the right steps to fix and end that trial, but you don't have to lose your joy over it. Because again, people die, people change, circumstances change, your bosses change, your work changes, but God never changes. And that's where our joy is found. You don't have to lose your joy over it. And to help drive this point home, let's talk about what exactly a trial is. At its most fundamental level, something that we understand is the trial is is just difficulty. It's any sort of difficulty. That can range. There's millions of kinds of trials. But a trial of this sort 
it's a difficulty that comes from outside of us. You know what I mean by that? A virus, a situation, a circumstance, the, the government, the recession, the fight, something that's outside of us. Even illness would be considered something outside of us. It's not something that we caused, we created. It can be an illness, a difficult decision, a death, a rude coworker, a lost job, loneliness, disappointment. Any and all of those are considered trials. They all result in some sort of suffering would be another aspect of a trial. It, 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 it results in some sort of suffering. It could be emotional. It could be physical. It could be both. These are all external. They are from outside of us, but they affect us. But it's very important to understand that the word trials that James uses here can also refer to internal trials, distinct from external trials. What is an internal trial biblically? It is simply the temptation to sin. And in order for this to make sense, we must acknowledge that temptation and sin come from within us, not the devil. There may be an external catalyst, another person, money, a news report, but the sin and temptation come from within your own heart. Look down a few verses at James 1.14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. You say, well, no, that guy yelled at me. It's his fault. He made me mad. That girl was coming on to me. He, she made me lust. They may be the catalyst, but you responded. It is your sin in your heart that responded. So a trial can be external or from outward or it can be our own temptation to sin. Sometimes the internal temptation to sin comes from a wrong response to the outward trial. And so... Oftentimes, when we're going through a trial, it's both of these. And so the word trial can refer to both the external difficulty or problem as well as the internal temptation. And what is very important is to understand that the word for trial here literally means testing, proving, trying. You say, that's kind of a weird word to translate as trial maybe the world of athletics will help you time trials it's a test it's a test to see if they're good enough to get into the olympics they're trials tryouts so an athlete trying out for a team and the coach says let's see what you're made of that athlete knows what's coming he puts that athlete through a rigorous set of physical challenges and tests And then at the end of the trial, he knows what that athlete can do. And more importantly, if that athlete is truly, and this is important, truly what he claims to be. This idea is brought out regarding trials in verse 12. Look down there, James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, there it is, the approval through the test, He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. This is not saying that we earn our salvation through enduring trials, but we prove ourselves, we show ourselves to be true Christians. Now we saw this last week, but for James' original audience, they were enduring extreme poverty, which will be referred to throughout this epistle as he talks about the rich who are oppressing them. They are also facing religious persecution because remember, his original audience is primarily Jews who converted to Christianity and have even had to flee their homeland because of the possibility of death and persecution. And so James knows that this is what they're going through. Yet, in God's infinite wisdom, he keeps his instruction broad. So we know that this applies to all trials and not just persecution or poverty. And he highlights this with the word various, various trials. We get that there's not just one kind of trial. Trials come in all shapes and sizes, and many trials are custom-fitted to the individual. 
And not only are trials various, they are inevitable. They're inevitable. Death and taxes add trials. We all go through them. And that's why he says, when you encounter, not if, when you encounter various trials. You will encounter, literally fall into, usually unexpectedly, trials, and they can strike at any moment, which is why this teaching is so important. Like anything in the Christian life, if you are not facing a particular situation in which there are certain commands that you need to apply right now, you need to know right now how you're going to face that when it does come. You don't just try to come up with what to say when someone says, hey, tell me about your God. You need to know now how you're going to evangelize. You need to know now, singles, how you're going to treat your spouse someday. You are need to know now, singles and undating, how you're going to practice purity when you're dating somebody. And all Christians need to know now how they're going to endure trials with joy now because they are coming. We must respond in a way that honors God and we must respond to all trials in a way that honors God and respond in a way that regardless of what the trial is, when it comes, how it comes, who it comes to in addition to you, we must respond in a way that pleases the Lord. I do want to point out that never in Scripture are we called to seek out trial despite the wonderful benefits of trials that we'll see this morning? And we don't really need to seek them out, do we? Because they come. They come in things. They come in people. They come in situations. We're never called to seek out trials. But the Bible does promise that trials will come. In fact, a very unique type of trial that the Bible actually promises, not warns just in case, promises that if you're a faithful believer, you will face persecution. And the final thing I want to point out about this verse, verse 2, is that James is speaking to my brethren. He's speaking to Christians. And so the response to trials is going to be very different for the unbeliever. What is promised here through trials and what we are called to do is actually impossible for the unbeliever because this needs God in our lives. But we know that Christ has taken the wrath for our sin upon himself at the cross. So the difficulties of the Christian life are not to condemn us. They are not God's wrath against sin. That it was taken by Jesus Christ. Trials come to test us. Trials come to grow us. And yes, it is possible that trials come to discipline us, which is very different than condemnation and wrath. To summarize, we have the call to choose to think of trials as a joy. You have joy being rooted in God rather than emotions or circumstances. By the way, one of the circumstances can be whether or not the other person who's harmed you even cares. That circumstances is, doesn't matter. Shouldn't rob you of your joy. And then thirdly, you have a blanket statement referring to any and all trials. And when you put these all together, God is telling us that there is no excuse for a lack of joy in the midst of trials. So as a Christian, a wise question to ask yourself is how do you respond to trials? How do you respond to difficulties? Is it anger? Is it fatalistic? Is it hopelessness? Or is it with an understanding of God's sovereignty and love? If it's the former, perhaps you're too focused on yourself and your circumstances. This would certainly explain a lack of joy. If it's a focus on God, then you will have joy. Again, not always easy, but definitely possible and clearly commanded. And this is the main premise of what James wants us to understand about trials. 
And like most foundational statements, they must be fully fleshed out within the context to be completely understood. We can just look at verse 2 and say, I'm going to try to have joy in trials. But verses 3 and 4, when connected to it, and it's a full statement, it's a full flow of thought, we understand how and why to have joy in trials. In other words, having joy in trials is going to be very hard if you don't see the purpose in trials. And this leads us to our second truth to understand to have joy in difficulty, the favorable product. The favorable product. Look at verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Have joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Here we go. James explains why, how. By explaining what trials do to us in the context of our faith, James gives us a reason to be joyful when difficulties come. We see from the end of the verse that endurance is the end result. But let's look at what leads to that. He begins by going back to the literal definition of trial. It is a testing. He calls it in verse 3, a testing of your faith. And in the midst of a trial, think about the last time you've gone through a serious, serious difficulty. You may have found yourself saying to yourself or to someone else when they say, how's it going with that? You say, my faith is being tested. Familiar with that term? If you ever said that, little did you know how biblically accurate you were being. Testing is literally proving or the act of proving. It's the kind of testing that, would put, uh, that we would put a supposed precious stone or gold necklace through, testing to prove or disprove its authenticity. Is it genuine? Is it real? Is it valid? And like that athlete, you don't see how proficient he is at his sport by watching, him how, he's, watching how he sleeps or getting a gauge of what he does when he relaxes. No, you put him through rigorous physical activity. And if those activities are too easy for him, you push him harder to see just how real and how good he is. And that's the idea here. You can't test the genuineness of someone's trust in God by counting their church attendance. You can't gauge someone's faith by them reading the Bible every day or even debating theology. An unbeliever can do all those things. No, you put him through a rigorous trial that pushes him or her to the point that you can see just how real and how good he is, meaning how much they turn to the Lord and don't break down. This word, testing, is used in the New Testament only here in James 1.3 and in 1 Peter 1.7. I'd like you to turn there, 1 Peter 1.7. And as you turn there, you'll see this is really a sister passage. It's talking about the exact same thing, using the word trials and, and, and testing the same words that James uses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. It's where we see that word. And we're going to start in verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And here it is, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, both James and Peter illustrate with the process of testing, which also is connected to the refining of gold. In the same way, God uses trials not only to test the genuineness of our faith, but also to make it stronger. Make it pure. Refine it. The testing its validity part of it is seen in the grammar, which has the idea of approved after testing, or tested and approved. The refining aspect of this concept is seen in the use of the word that speaks of refining precious metals. It's the same word they would use. And so this concept is also drawn out in the rest of the verse. The testing of your faith produces endurance. There's a refining process there. 
And when this testing produces, or what this testing produces rather, is endurance. Endurance is more than patience, but it has the idea of being patient. It, talks of, it speaks of faithful endurance. The picture that you could grab from this Greek word is a picture of someone who can successfully carry a heavy load for a long time. And you can see why God would want us to grow in that, understanding the Christian life. In classical Greek, this word that's translated for us, endurance, was used to refer to perseverance in the face of hostile enemies. And this kind of perseverance, as we know, is extolled by Scripture as a virtue in the Christian life. Largely because life is difficult and wide is the road that leads to hell. To faithfully pursue the narrow road takes strength, it takes determination, it takes courage, which all flow from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some may be concerned, say, I don't have that kind of endurance, especially not for the Lord. The good news is he's saying that trials will produce this kind of endurance. Trials produce endurance because it is in the testing of your faith that you are forced to turn to God. And as you do that, you're understanding that His purposes are holy and good, and you're understanding that His his sovereignty ensures the fulfillment of His will will be strengthened and refined. And like that alloy, that mixed metal that's mostly gold, the refining process will remove those impurities so that after every trial there is more pure gold than before. See, trials in our lives strip away the impurities of our faith. The impurities such as faith in self, faith in finances, faith in worldly wisdom or those who espouse worldly wisdom. The more gold you are, the more you have faith solely in God. And although endurance involves patience, it is more than patience. See, patience, which is also a virtue in Scripture, is quietly accepting harm inflicted by others, patiently waiting until it passes. Endurance is more. Endurance is actually the result of patience. Endurance takes patience and adds those wonderful ideas of hope and expectancy. Hope in God and expectancy to do what is good for you, even if that means the continuation of the trial. Endurance is an unwavering and constant determination to yield your life fully to God and remain faithful in trials, knowing that there may not be a reward here for that, but there is a reward in heaven. There is a reward for us in heaven. Endurance is an active faith that responds to a trial by converting a difficulty to a victory. Not victory in the human conventional sense, victory in the sense of your heart being fully focused and rejoicing and glorifying God. When handled rightly, we come out of the trial stronger and ready to face even more because our endurance has been produced. This is why the believer can respond to trials with joy. Because trials fulfill what is our greatest heart's desire, and that is to be more like Christ. Trials make us trust God more. Like any aspect of spiritual growth, we don't automatically grow just because we've experienced something. You don't automatically grow because you've experienced a sermon, you've experienced fellowship. We grow because of experience faced with God in mind, and God's glory pursued. It's the same thing with anything. You don't get better at work just because you sat through the training while listening to your music. You become a better worker because you sat through the training and you were engaged. You learned, and then you took what you learned and you did something about it, and that's what we're saying about trials. You will not just grow because you've gone through a trial. 
In fact, if you don't face the trial rightly, you could go further from God in your faith. You will not grow if you fail the test. The test of the trial, the testing. How do you fail the test? Well, here are some ways. You whine and complain. You shake your fist at God. You don't take responsibility and you blame other people. Justify your bad attitude and your sin because she did this, he did that. You fail the test when you focus only on yourself and what you don't have rather than on God and what you must give. You fail the test when you focus only on yourself and what you don't have rather than on God and what you must give. It's the difference between saying, woe is me versus faithful is he. How do you know if you're responding rightly? It's a full circle. You know because you have joy. And you know you have joy because you're focused not on the end of the trial, not on self. Well, at least now people will think I'm tough. Not on some sort of reward. Sorry you went through that. We're going to give you extra at your Christmas bonus. That's happiness. That's selfish happiness. Not grin and bear it. Not coming out more bitter than before. Not blaming others. Joy. Oh, I get it. Joy means... When that person, nope. Joy is when the, nope. Joy is God. Joy is when you look at God and God alone. Joy. Again, not happiness says, that says, well, at least I, you know, I, I guess I'm stronger now. I get sympathy from others. Now he owes me. <laughs> that was tough, but now he owes me one. I can ask him for something later. Or any other selfish pursuit. Joy. It's joy. You, you can't do that with God, right? Oh, now He owes me one. Because it's like, how does He owe you? You fulfilled the trillions and trillions of ways that you owe Him? Joy. In the end, endurance plays its part, but it is not the final goal. The final goal is seen in verse 4. And our third truth to understand, to have joy and difficulty. We've seen the foundational premise, the favorable product, and finally, the final purpose. The final purpose. What is the purpose of all of this, including endurance? James 1.4, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? As children of God, He is moving us along toward a path of sanctification that culminates in completion and perfection. In that process, He utilizes many different methods. And trials is one of the most effective as it produces endurance which leads to perfection, completion, and lacking nothing. We are reminded again that we must allow trials to do their work in us by responding in the right way. Let, James says, endurance have its perfect result. How do you not let trials do what they're meant to do in God's plan? You fight against God by sinning. All those things we've talked about. Anger, fighting, depression, hopelessness, things like that. Focusing on self. We need to let it have its perfect result. And here the word perfect means complete. So let endurance have its complete result. Let it do its work. The ESV says, let it have its full effect. The NIV says, let endurance finish its work. So what is the finished perfect work? A believer who is perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. In the Old Testament, the idea of perfection was undivided obedience to God and a sinless, unblemished life. We're familiar in terms of the Old Testament sacrifices of an animal that was acceptable to be sacrificed to God, completely unblemished, no bruises, no bumps, no maiming, nothing. For us, perfect is Christ-likeness. 
this should be your greatest desire. The standard of who Christ is should be your only standard. There is no other standard of measure that should matter to you aside from that measure that culminates in perfection in Christ. Not even the status quo of this church. Well, they all do it, so I'll get there too. We're all sinners. We're all humans. No other standard matters except the standard of Jesus Christ. Because He alone is perfect. We will also, secondly, James says, will be complete. This means whole, sound, in need of nothing, having no deficiency, having all the parts. This includes the entirety of Christian virtues. Complete. And thirdly, the perfect result of endurance, which is produced by trials, is to be lacking in nothing. Literally falling short in nothing. This means that we will not lack anything of spiritual importance or value. Again, none of this has anything to do with the world standards, but only the standard of God. Now we know we will not have any of this fully, until we see Jesus Christ face to face. You will never be completely sinless this side of heaven, this life. But if that is our standard and our goal, we push forward in so many ways that the Bible tells us to towards that goal and understand that we don't go it alone. God is helping us. And here James is saying, God is helping you to that end through trials. Through trials. It's easy to judge, but we must have sympathy on the world when they look to dull their pain and difficulty and suffering. But sometimes we as believers, we look at what is available to us on the internet, at the store, on Amazon, on the street corner, at the liquor store. Sometimes we try too hard to use the world's ways to dull the pain of trial. And then you keep doing it. You keep doing it. You know why you didn't just stop at that one-time affair? You know why you didn't stop with that one night of drunkenness? You know why you keep buying more stuff? Because the last time you bought something to dull the pain, the happiness didn't last. So you need something else. You buy more stuff. You have more kids. You go on more vacations. And sure enough, the happiness ends and the pain remains. You haven't dealt with it properly because you're looking to the ways of the world. You try to compensate for a bad marriage or stressful kids by this frail structure of happiness that the world can buy. Yesterday was so bad that today I'm going to fill it with the things of the world. Here's the problem. It happened. You can't go back in time to fix it. The hardship is already done. The hardship is already here. And what you should have done and can do from here on out is to have the right perspective during the trial. And you will have so much joy in focusing on the Lord that yeah, you're you're going to want the pain to end. But you will have no need to look to the world to bury the pain. If perfection and completion are God's goal for us, then why in the world would we lower the bar? If trials properly responded to bring us joy, bring us endurance, drive us closer to home and our King who is waiting for us there, why would we lower the bar with revenge? Why would we lower the bar with stuff, with alcohol, with yelling at people, with breaking relationships? 
with turning on the TV and shutting off our minds. It doesn't make sense. You see, far too often, this noblest of goals is clouded by our desire for the things of this world, which is why we lose our joy. And ironically, so many people in the church have trials because of the stuff they keep buying. Make your focus that which is otherworldly and you will have otherworldly joy. Three truths to understand to have joy and difficulty, the foundational premise, the favorable product, the final purpose. And as I said in the beginning, you have to understand all of these truths for this to work. You say, I do have faith in God, but the trials still rob me of, your, of my joy. It may be that you need to make completion in Christ your greatest priority and accept what God is going to put in your life so that you get closer to that. I don't know many professional or even collegiate athletes, but the ones that I have spoken to or read about They don't quite enjoy dieting. They're there to throw the ball, to catch the ball, not get beaten on by other people, not get tackled, not to hit pads with all their strength that their coach is standing on to push them across the field. But they endure that with worldly happiness because they know the end result is a victory, a Super Bowl ring, a championship ring, a place on the team, better pay. You do this. You endure happily bad bosses, ungrateful coworkers. Why? Because the paycheck is coming. You're looking for that promotion. And it's the same idea, but with so much more wonder and glory involved to endure the pain so that we can be more like Christ. Now, if you are hoping for joy just so the trial will hurt less, then you have missed the whole point. It is the pain that brings us joy because it's the pain that is going to bring about the proof of our faith which in in turn produces endurance, which in turn brings us to perfection. Perhaps you can relate to what John Piper once wrote. He wrote, I have never heard anyone say, the really deep lessons of my life have come through times of ease and comfort. He goes on and says, but I have heard strong saints say, Every significant advance I have ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with Him has come through suffering. Not that my experience trumps Scripture, but that's been true of me, true of my life. It's been true of many of your lives as you've gone through trials in a way that pleases the Lord, at least look back on them and See the Lord's hand in that. We have the ability to consider it all joy, not just so that the pain goes away, but so that we will grow closer to Christ. And you understand. You understand. You're smart people. You understand that what this is saying, consider it all joy because your trial will produce endurance so that you can deal with a greater trial that is to come. But it's all the refining process. That gold, if it was personified and it is put through the furnace, the blazing hot fire, I would imagine it would scream a lot. But if it is a piece of gold that has been refined before, and has seen how some of the impurities were taken away last time, as believers, we would look at that and hear that scream and say, I don't know if those are screams of pain or squeals of joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, 
and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, what a wonder to think that you have left us here. You have sent your son to die for us. And though our sins are covered, you don't just leave us to wallow in, in the filth of our sin, but you too desire holiness and completion and perfection in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you have put these things in our lives and knowing that even if we were unbelievers and didn't know you, we would go through trials and so how amazingly kind and gracious and loving of you that you would use this normal effect of the fall in our lives to nurture us, to refine us, to grow us, to be more pure so that we would be solid gold in our faith. Father, trials are difficult. And we're thankful that you sent your Son and we're thankful, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have endured trials unlike any of us will experience. You endured. You cried out in pain. You prayed to the Father. You showed us how we can endure trials in a human way yet at the same time not dishonoring our God. Give us that strength, Lord. Give us that perspective that we may find joy in becoming more like you. Guard us against being so consumed with the things of the world, whether it's material things or just comfort, that we encounter trials in an ungodly manner an ungodliness that so often has a ripple effect onto other believers. But may we as individuals and we as a church come alongside those individuals so that our trials are pure joy, not because of what we get from attention and earthly things, but because of what we get in our own hearts and becoming more like who we want to be, you, our God, to be holy for our God is holy. Prepare us now for what is coming and use what is coming mightily in our lives and for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we close. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.